Turning now in the Word of God to the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, and we read from verse 7 through to the verse 13, the book of Revelation, the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7 through to the verse 13. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Let us come and let us hear. The Lord help us, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his precious word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, And no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Unto the churches. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his precious, holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word here to our hearts this evening and all to the glory of his name. Well, friends, let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Let us worship him, praise him, thank him, and adore him, and bring our many petitions before him this night. Well, dear congregation, I ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention to that portion of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of the Revelation and the chapter 3. We arrive with the Lord's help this evening in verses 7 to the verse 13. And with the Lord's help this evening, as we arrive in these verses, going through verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept in our consecutive expository ministry, we consider this evening the church here at Philadelphia. We come now to the sixth church out of the seven churches in the book of the Revelation. Now remember what we said, and I don't want to weary you too much by the things that I've said. I'll try to say them as brief as I can, but I do need to set some of the principles of the book of the Revelation so that we can once again understand. There may be someone here tonight that uh, perhaps either this is the first time that you're hearing teaching from the book of the Revelation, or perhaps maybe you've forgotten some of these principles. The Bible, first of all, interprets the Bible. The Bible is not only self-attesting, but it is its own interpreter. And we see a lot of symbolic language, a lot of symbolism, in the book of the Revelation. And no doubt, if you've read through the book of the Revelation, you've seen the number seven feature very much, almost in every chapter. Seven signifies whole, it symbolizes complete. And we see that there are seven churches. As I said, this is the sixth church. And if you were to draw a line from church to church, you would indeed come 
and make a full circle. This also signifies it's not just to seven churches, but you notice in each of these letters to these seven churches, the Lord says, let us hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And of course, the various churches would read the entire book of the Revelation, what the Lord would say to the other churches. Now, of course, there was an address, there was an admonition, there was instruction given to each church individually at this specific time. And what we could say is that these seven churches are representative of all churches throughout the gospel age. Sometimes the church may look like the church at Ephesus. Sometimes the church may look like the church at Laodicea. Or here, the church at Philadelphia. And uh, it's important that we understand this, that these churches represent how churches can be down through the gospel age. This number seven is symbolic. As I've said, it's a predominant number in the book of the Revelation. We also know that the Lamb has seven eyes. It doesn't literally mean that Jesus Christ has seven eyes and seven horns. It would be a rather grotesque-looking animal upon a throne. Horns represent power. Eyes represent omniscience. He perfectly sees. He has full power. There are seven trumpets. There are seven bowls. And we have already... Notice that there are seven cycles in the book of the Revelation, haven't we? And we have observed the very fact that these are synchronous. These cycles give us a view from different angles of what is happening in the world since the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ up until his final coming. They are synchronous. They give us a view of different things in the world, different perspectives. I've said it's like watching an event take place from seven different angles. Maybe you watch a sports match and you see a goal scored. Again, I use the illustration, on your way from your house to the church, you take different pictures. That's the sense. Different angles, different perspectives, up until the last day. And again, I remind you that we're in the first cycle here. Chapter 1 through to chapter 4 is the first cycle. And the Lord will have us to think upon this very important fact that Christ, as we've seen in chapter 1, is walking amidst the churches. He loves his church. Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He walks amongst the lampstands. We're told in chapter 1, the lampstands represent the churches. But also in chapter 4, at the end of the cycle, we see him on the throne. He who at the same time, by his spirit, can be amongst the churches, is in heaven. And that's a picture of him governing, ruling. We know from Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And we know that that has to do, Psalm 110 was only fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled his earthly work, because Paul, in Hebrews chapter 2, quotes Psalm 110, when he says, To which of the angels did he say, At any time, sit down at my right hand? The Father has now said to the Son, You finish your work here on earth. Revelation 4, we see him sitting on the throne, unloosing the the scrolls, as it were, the seals. The events in the world are all taking place because they are ordered by a sovereign God. Now, in this first cycle, we're dealing with the churches, or rather the Lord is dealing with the churches. And they, again, they not only apply to these specific churches, but they apply to us. Every time we've seen it, look at the verse 11. There's an order of chapter 1. In verse 11, there is a specific order given there. And we have seen, because God is a God of order, 
that these churches are now occurring in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the same order that we find them in chapter 1, verse 11. Unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And of course, as I've said, we've arrived here tonight in the church, and we consider the church at Philadelphia. Church at Philadelphia is a very important church, as all the churches are, for us to consider. And may we hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. This church here tonight, and us all individually, if we're in the church, of course, we're, we're part of the church, church members, members of the body of Christ. Now, remember what I said at the outset of our studies. As we look at these seven churches, the church at Smyrna is unique alongside with the church at Smyrna. Sorry, Philadelphia is unique to Smyrna in that there is no general condemnation from the Lord. There's nothing that the Lord condemns as a whole to the church. Now, that doesn't mean that this church was without sin. But there is nothing that the Lord levels here against the church and says, I have this against thee. But again, it reminds us that the church is not perfect. But he is here, on the whole, encouraging them in their faithfulness. No doubt they had personal failings, each and every one of them, and we all do. But there's no general reprimand, there's no general reproval from the Lord. Now, it's a very similar order to what we've seen concerning the previous five churches, with exception to condemnation. So firstly, notice we see the address to the church at Philadelphia, verse 7, and to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, write. Now again, I must emphasize, John is not writing to an heavenly angel, but this angel of the church, if you just go back to chapter 1, verse 20, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we are told that the angels are them that he holds in his right hand. These are men. The word angel means messenger. It can mean that in the Greek. The messenger of the truth. And it's very interesting if you turn to Revelation 1.16, when John sees and hears the Lord... He sees Christ, and we need read there, and he that had in his right hand seven stars, and we know those are the ministers, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That's the word of God. As we're told in Hebrews, that the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Here speaking of the Lord Jesus. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, that's John, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now it's very interesting, the Lord lays upon John his right hand. And what is in the Lord's right hand? His ministers. And we know, of course, John is an apostle, a minister of the truth, a minister of the gospel. And this would have been a comfort, no doubt, to John as he... The Lord touched him. John was faithful, wasn't he? And John is suffering for the sake of Christ as a minister, for the sake of the gospel. Now we come to this church, the church Philadelphia. We ask the question, where did the church get its name from? Philadelphia. Well, Philadelphia is a Greek word, and it's a Greek named city here. And it's named after King Attalus II, who was known to show great loyalty and brotherly love for his brother Eumenes. And that's how the city actually got its name. And if you know anything about the New Testament or New Testament Greek, um, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. So when we turn to Hebrews 13, verse 1, Paul writing to the Hebrew Jews there, says, let brotherly love continue. It's the same Greek word 
Philadelphia. And so this city got its name. It wasn't a believing city. There was a church in the city by the fact that there was a king there, King Attalus II, who showed great loyalty and love to his brother Eumenes. But you know, the interesting thing is that this church showed great brotherly love and showed love for the Lord. Now, as we move on here, the second thing I want us to think, the Lord uses one of his distinct titles, as we've seen before, when he writes to the other churches, and it's always tailored to the needs of that specific church. I hope that I'm not being pedantic saying this, but I hope that you see and we're learning that the Lord says things for a reason. And now it'll become apparent to us later why we see this title. And I'm going to just cover a little bit of background in a moment. But what is this title that is very apposite, that is very appropriate for this church, that's tailored to this church? Verse 7b, these things saith he that is holy, that's the Lord Jesus, he is the holy one, he that is true, He that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Now, first of all, before we come to the reason, I want you to think about the fact that this church is being greatly commended. And uh, before we'll consider why that title is given, let's just look at the commendation first, verse 8. What does he commend? I know thy works. Again, the word Edo means to have a knowledge, an intimate knowledge, just not simply a knowledge, not gnosis. But the Lord knows everything. He knows the lives of these people. He knows their circumstances. He knows their trials. He knows their difficulties. He knows every single thing about them. He knows them before they're even born. He knows them on into eternity. But he knows them now in the world and how they're living. The Lord says, I know thy works. I have set before thee an open door. And we'll consider that tonight. What does that mean? Paul tells the Corinthians that the Lord had opened up to him a door in Ephesus. It doesn't simply just mean opportunity, but the Lord is going to open the hearts of people. We don't believe that salvation merely comes by opportunity or comes by people persuading, or make... I cannot make somebody a Christian. The Lord can give the opportunity, but the Lord has to open the heart. He has to change the mind, the will, the affections, and turn the feet, as we sometimes sing, to Zion's hill. The Lord has his appointed time when he brings all the sheep into the fold, but he is pleased to work and sovereignly to glorify his name where churches are faithful. And this church, though they're small, though they are but a few, he has set before them an open door. And no man can shut, for thou hast a little strength. And that implies that they are perhaps small in number, maybe not even valued by other churches, but they're faithful and the Lord sees them. They are true and has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Many had. There was a lot of persecution. We thought of Antipas, one of the first martyrs, not one of the first martyrs, Stephen, we believe, was the first martyr, but Antipas, there were many that were martyred already. Many apostles, most of them, in fact, apart from John, suffered martyrdom, were put to death. Many, many Christians, not just the apostles, But many, many were persecuted, lost homes, families, lands, lost their lives. Many of them thrown into boiling oil. Many of them thrown to the lions. Many of them were left destitute, living in caves. The church, we can notice here, though it was small and had a little strength, and that more than likely means that there were few of them and little help, they had kept the word of God. 
Isn't that such an encouragement? You know, I've been to a number of churches in my years of preaching. And you know, you can go to a very large church and be very discouraged. But you can go to a small church and you can see how faithful some of the saints go on. And my, you, you go away being far more encouraged being in that little church than being at some large church where everybody just follow each other like sheep. They, they just gathered there to meet each other, but they're not there to gather to meet the Lord. And, uh, well, it's encouraging when you find a faithful few. And the Lord is so thankful. Of course, he has done the work in them, and yet they strive and they labor, and they can say, yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. They giving God the glory. They had many people that were opposing them. We read here of the Jews. There were them in this city of Philadelphia that said that there were Jews. And the Lord says they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. They're not really Jews. And now the Jews are supposed to love their own. But they're not. You think of the name here, Philadelphia. I'm trying to introduce you to this title and why it's so significant. And the Lord says here that he has set before them an open door. Now, what does that mean? I've already said it means not just a door of opportunity, but that the Lord will do something. And I want you to think for a moment, when the Lord, if you just turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, Paul is bidding farewell in his epistle to the church at Corinth, and he writes about an opportunity that the Lord, an open door that the Lord has opened up to him, where? At Ephesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. It's interesting, isn't it? Where a door is opened up, there are going to be adversaries. And you know, Paul had a terrible time at Ephesus, but it was a place of much blessing as well. Remember how the goddess Diana was venerated there. But there's also adversary there. But the Lord has opened up the door. But the Lord will open up the hearts of people in Ephesus. Not only is their opportunity. Of course, God has created the opportunity. But it's something more that's required. He that opens up the hearts. Do you remember where Paul says, or rather the Lord says to Paul in Acts 16, don't go there. Don't go to Asia. Go to Europe. He says, because I've got many people there. That's where you go window of opportunity, but it's more than opportunity. Let me say this. Salvation is not about opportunity. It's about God's sovereignty, isn't it? God still has to open the heart. You know, the police may, authorities may not trouble us. And you might think this is a wonderful place to preach. And we could say, there's an opportunity. But I tell you, friend, unless the Lord opens hearts, Nobody will ever believe. Nobody will ever become a Christian. And where there is going to be faithfulness, there is going to be persecution. And we know from the historical records that where there was blessing and where the gospel spread, there was more persecution. Why? Because the more persecution, the more it spread into the world. It's always the way. Now we come back to the question. Here this evening in verse 7b, why does the Lord use this title that we also find in chapter 1? He that, that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and no man openeth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. 
Why does he use this title? Well, the only time that this phrase is used elsewhere is in the Old Testament. So if you turn there with me to Isaiah 22, and what you'll notice there, let me just quickly set the background. King David, we know, is long gone now at this time of history. The king is King Hezekiah. And uh, Isaiah 22, during the days of King Hezekiah, he was a godly king, of course. He wasn't perfect, but he was very much in the line of David. He was one of the kings of Judah in the south. Well, during his reign, he found that there was a very ungodly man, as it were, in his cabinet, one of the treasurers in his cabinet that he had to basically get rid of because he was corrupt. Well, it was right that they taxed the people, but this man lined his own pockets. We must render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But this man was corrupt himself. And the people basically were thinking, well, why should I, and they were wrong, why should I honor the king if this government official is corrupt? Well, you see, they began to be like him, corrupt. And that's not right. A Christian should always honor God, should always render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But during his day, this man, one of the treasurers, the king's treasurers, was King Hezekiah. He had this man, his name was Shebna. As I said, he was corrupt, very evil. And... Uh, Isaiah prophesied, notice in the verse 20, uh, 15, let me read from there. Isaiah prophesied by God that Shebna would be replaced by a very godly man who the Lord would choose, and his name is Eliakim. Verse 15, Isaiah twenty-two fifteen. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasure, even unto Shebna which is over the house, and say, What hast thou there? And whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewed thee out a sepulchre here? And he that heweth him out a sepulchre on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock, behold, the Lord will carry thee away, that's Shebna, with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. Now this ultimately is going to be Israel as well, if they continue on in this corruption. Now notice, there shall thou die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. Now notice verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with my robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now notice, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups even to the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail, that is, this man Eliakim that is fastened in the shore place be removed and be cut down. He's going to be suddenly cut off and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off. For the Lord hath spoken it. Now, we know very clearly, and I've preached on this and there are sermons available for you to listen to. Here from the book of Isaiah. And there's also reference, you can read all about Eliakim and Shebna 
in the book of Kings, that Eliakim foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. And we notice here that he has the keys of David. And what does that mean? Keys speak of power. They speak of authority. They speak of ability. There was this, and we know David. Why the keys of David? Well, we know David did mighty things for the Lord. Remember how the Lord gave him victory over all of his enemies. We sing now in Second Samuel, David's downfall. Of course, he's not the perfect king. But the Lord blessed David. So long as David walked in the ways of God, so long as the, David walked and honored God, he had power, he had authority. And the enemies were troubled and could not subdue David. David subdued all of his enemies. And David was a faithful king, and the people loved David, wasn't he? He was one of the people, unlike Saul, a corrupt man. David was an honest man. The keys represent power to the kingdom. And because, by and large, David was a man whose spirit was ruled by God. Wouldn't we say that? Of course, David had his times when he was lax. But David, by and large, was a man after God's own heart. David, he wasn't so much ruled by his heart all the time. Sometimes he was, but most of the time, his head and his heart were ruled by the word of God. And he had that power in the kingdom. It's the keys of David. Even remember how David treated his enemy, Saul. Even remember when Saul was alive. How kind David was. And the people respected David for that. And even after Saul was dead, he refused to speak evil against Saul. Now you think for a moment, this city, Philadelphia, is supposed to be named after a king that loved his brother. But this church, the church at Philadelphia, they had real brotherly love, and they loved the Lord. Now you think of this man here in Isaiah, Eliakim. There are several things that point us to Christ. And this, is, this is really beautiful. I wish we had more time this evening, but I'll be as quick as I can and uh, try and open this up to you. When we think, first of all, of Eliakim, Eliakim had to replace the man Shebna. And it's true, there was one man, Adam, wasn't there? But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, had to come into this world. He who has power. David, ultimately, was given power, wasn't he? But Christ is full of the Spirit, full of power, full of wisdom, full of knowledge. He who has the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God, Jesus Christ, is everything and he is the one who redeems us. We were lost in Adam, but we're saved in Jesus Christ. And he loves the brethren. And we're told there, if you just notice there in Isaiah 22, we notice that this one shall be a father unto the people. Shebna, uh, not Shebna, Eliakim. And it shall come to pass, verse 20, in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with my, thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand. And you think about the Lord Jesus. We know from Isaiah 9, 6, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and he shall be a father to the inhabitant. They looked to him because he was such a godly man, just like David was a father to the people. Of course, before his downgrade, before his slipping into sin, but Eliakim was faithful. He had the keys of David. He had wisdom, he had power, he had knowledge. And that is what made him great. That is what made David great. The wisdom of God. The love for God that was in his heart. The love for the brethren. And in a far greater way. And we note there how Eliakim is a nail in a sure place. 
We see some big hooks out there in the hall. And you can hang heavy things upon them. Even many vessels. We are told by Paul, as he writes to Timothy, the house of God is made up of many vessels, some of gold, some of silver. That's the house of God. And they all hang upon Christ. How we're blessed in Christ. Well, first Louis, he was a father. Unlike Shebna, he wasn't corrupt. Unlike the, the people here in the place of Philadelphia, the Jews who said they were Jews, but they were supposed to love their brethren, they didn't. They're all words. Well, Shebna had to be replaced, just as Adam had to be replaced. But Christ is the one who opens hearts. Christ is the one who has power, who has wisdom. And because this church has honored him, has kept his word, and is not shaming Christ, he has given them an open door, and he will open the hearts of many. Eliakim, something else. Although he was highly honored, we're told there in verse 20b of Isaiah 22, that he is called a servant. And that's exactly how the Lord Jesus was. Did he not come as a servant? And how have the people been at Philadelphia? They've been servants. They've not been serving themselves. They've been serving the true and the living God. That's true, isn't it? And we know from Isaiah 42, the Lord announcing his son coming into the world. Behold my servant, in whom I uphold, mine elect. This is he that hath the keys of David. The one that would come, of whom Eliakim, Eliakim was foreshadowing. Eliakim was just foreshadowing Christ. Christ is the great antitype. And you see, Eliakim was not only a godly man, but he, he changed a people that were so corrupted. And is that not true for a true church? A true church is the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Didn't the Lord Jesus say that? Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. But if the salt has lost its savor, what use is it? Now these people were faithful. His spirit is in them. Now, the Lord Jesus, just like Eliakim, we're told there in Isaiah 22 that Eliakim was a father to the people. But isn't the Lord Jesus Christ a father to his people? We're told, aren't we, in Isaiah 9, verse 6, that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. In what sense is he the Father? Well, he is the Everlasting Father of a new people, the last Adam. Adam was our first father. Of course, Jesus Christ is not God the Father, but he is the head, as it were, of a new race. He says in Hebrews 2, here am I and all the children and whom God has given me. Have you read it? Christ is the head of his people. And his people follow him. Hebrews 2.10. We read of Christ. I read from verse 11. For it, I read from verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory. That's why Jesus Christ, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified, that's Christ, and those that are sanctified are his people, are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and brethren simply means kinsmen, doesn't mean brother, it means kinsmen. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. I will praise, sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I, that's Christ, and the children which God 
has given me. They are his children in the sense that he is the last Adam. Head, the federal head of a new people. Remember what he said, I will not leave you as orphans. The Lord Jesus said that to his disciples. Eliakim also, just as he was a nail in a sure place, where is the Lord Jesus? Friends, he's not in the grave. He has sat down and gone into the most holy of holies. He has gone through the veil. Paul says, we have an anchor. Where is the anchor? That anchor has gone through the veil. You think of a ship's anchor. When you toss an anchor overboard, it's no use unless it's gone to the bottom and it hooks on something. It's no use if it's being thrown around the deck, is it? Christ is not in the grave. But he is the high priest interceding for his people in a far greater way He is his people's surety. And you know what? When he sees his people walking faithfully, he'll bless them. Eliakim was cut off suddenly. We notice there in Isaiah 22, 25. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. We're told in the book of Daniel that he was cut off. We read in Revelation, don't we, that the man-child was suddenly cut off and received up into glory. He's in a sure place. He will not fail. He looks at the church here at Philadelphia. He says, you're faithful. You're true. I have the keys of David. I have the power. Well, this is remarkable. What does this mean here as we move on in this text? He tells us here, there are some promises. Behold, I know thy works, verse 8. We come to Revelation 3, 8. I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Now notice, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. These people lie. They're not really Christians. When we speak of a Jew, remember what Paul said, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And he said circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. Didn't he say that? So what is he saying? Those who say they are Jews, but are not, they lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. Isn't that amazing? He says, he's not saying they're going to come and worship you, but they're going to come and they're going to worship. I will come and I will make them to worship, and I will make them, these Jews, to know that I have loved you. They thought, those Jews were self-deceived and thought Christians were cursed. Because many Christians by now were put to death. I take you just very briefly to what Paul says to the Hebrews in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. He says this to the troubled Jews just before the destruction of Jerusalem. He said, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, that you were brought to the light, you endured a great flight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds. Paul said, I want to remind you, the time there is around about 64, 65 AD. He says, I want you to remember what happened to you as Jews. You were lined up, you were rounded up, and you were made a gazing stock The Jews would mock you, would ridicule you. You lost possessions. He said, I have need. 
but you gave me of your substance. You had brotherly love. He says, just remember, don't let these things slip. And what does he say? Hold fast with patience your profession. You profess to be a Christian. Don't lose that. Now, what is going to happen? The Lord says, I will change the hearts of many of these Jews. Now, you think about it. In this city of Philadelphia were many Jews. And there were many Christians. And why were the Christians there? Well, because they were chased out of Jerusalem into foreign lands. They had lost their homeland. They had lost everything for the sake of Jesus. They would lost everything. The Lord says, you know what? You've been faithful. What I'm going to do is I am going to work in the lives of some of those Jews. And I'm going to change their hearts just like I did the Apostle Paul, who hated the church, who despised the church of God. And the Lord Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Remember? And the Lord converted him. The Lord Jesus has the keys of David, not only that he has wisdom, but he is actually able to change the hearts of people. His spirit gives the new birth. Do you remember what he said to Nicodemus? Except Nicodemus, a man be born again, or born from above. John 3, 3. He cannot see the kingdom of heaven. There was Lydia. You remember she came and with her heart, she couldn't receive the things of God, but we're told that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. There was not only an open door there in Philippi, but the Lord opened that woman's heart. And the Lord is saying, you've been faithful. I've given thee an open door. I will bless thee. And I'm going to make these people bow and worship. Now you remember Jonah had a problem, didn't he? You remember the people of Nineveh? Couldn't understand. Why is God saving these wicked people? The Ninevites. Grace. Did they deserve salvation? Did the Jews deserve salvation? No. None of us. And we understand that, don't we? The Lord says, I I, I will change. I will make them to worship. And I will make them to know, you know what? That you have not been cursed of God, but that you have been loved of God. Just like Paul had to realize that. Do you remember? Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church of God. Paul came to realize that. Many came to realize that. Now, they've been going on. But they, it says here, to him that overcometh. That is, you continue on against this hostility and persecution when your enemy does evil to you, what do you do? You don't show evil back. But you pray for your enemies. You do good to men. You pray for them. When he says, go one mile, you go the extra mile. When he strikes you in the face, you turn the other cheek. You overcome in the face of this hostility, in the face of this persecution. And sadly, many give up. You, you know, we, we, we read it in the, in the parable of the seed, don't we, in Matthew 13. Remember how the Lord said, there's some seed that's cast by the wayside, some falls on good ground, some amongst the thorns, some amongst the stony places. Yeah, but when the sun comes down, when persecution ariseth, doesn't endure. But the seed that's fall on the good ground, the same sun comes down. And the sun makes that plant stronger. 
It doesn't make it weaker, does it? Do the elements, do the trials make a real Christian weaker? No. Not according to the Lord Jesus, but stronger. Why? Because we believe God who changed our hearts can change other people's hearts. That's it, isn't it? Our hope is in God who changes. Changes people. Changes people around us. Family, friends, forsake us. What did the Lord say? He said, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. A man's enemies will be of his own household. We'll have enemies in the world. We'll have all kinds of enemies. But he that overcomes, he that trusts in me. You see, amidst our persecutions, amidst our trials, that is a tremendous time to witness, my friends. And the church at Philadelphia were doing that. There were Jews who were calling themselves Jews, but they were treating Christians who were, as it were, true sons of Abraham. Like the scum of the earth. To him that overcometh, I will make notice, this is beautiful, a pillar in the temple of my God. You think about it. Put this all into context. These people have been hounded out of their own land. By and large, these are Jews. Early, well, I say Jews, I mean as far as their nationality goes, but they're Christians. They have been chased out of Jerusalem. When Peter writes, he, he has to write to those that are scattered abroad. James has to write to those to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad. Peter says to those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and so on. Throughout Europe and Asia Minor, what does the Lord say? What, what will he do? Look at the promise of everlasting blessing if this exhortation is obeyed. Verse 12, Him that overcometh, I will make a pillar of my God. These people have seen the temple destroyed. What is the time now? The time now is between 95 AD and 98 AD. When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. And by and large, the Jews are blaming Christians for that. But that is because they forsook the promises. Or the Jew was blind to the, to the promise of the Old Testament that the Savior would come into the world. But what does he say? I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. What is a pillar? It is something substantial. The promise of the Lord is, you will be in this temple and he shall go no more out. In other words, you're going to dwell with God forever. You might feel like an outsider in this world. And even here in Philadelphia, a city that is supposed to be named after brotherly love, and you don't even see it amongst people who call themselves Jews, And I will write upon him the name of my God. Now notice, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. He says, never mind the old Jerusalem. This is the real one. This is the city whose builder and maker is God. The same city that Abraham was looking for which does not have foundations, which foundations are of God that endures forever. And it's the same for the church today. The church that endures is the real church. It's the true church. The only real Christians are those who storm the weathers of this life. Those that by the grace of God withstand trials. Many will prove not to be 
Many will say, Lord, Lord. But he will say, I never knew. He that overcometh. If you love him, and you love him all because of grace, you will overcome. You will overcome because, just like the Jews, he has made you to worship him. Who made you to worship him? God. You didn't make yourself, just like we're told here. I will make them. My friends, salvation is of God. Remember what Paul says in Romans 9. It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Then we long for that. That we long, isn't it wonderful? When we see many souls of Tarsus changed to be saints. Beloved of God. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Now many of them are probably thinking, thank God we've escaped Jerusalem. Look at it, it's in ruins. What do we look for now? We look for a new heavens and a new earth. We look for that everlasting city. We look for that home. We've lost homes. We've lost this. We've lost that. We, we, we long to be with God. Notice which cometh down out of heaven. It's God's people. And to abide in that city, which cometh down from heaven from my God. And I will write, write upon him my new name. Well, we, we know what that name is. Later on we read on his thigh, is Lord of lords and King of kings. That means he's conquered. And we read that he has many crowns upon his head. And although I suppose it is a fait accompli, that means it's a done deal. You know, God has determined the outcome. It's still yet to take place. And thank the Lord we know the end, don't we? We read there in Revelation 21.1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And you notice there, in the close of the book of Revelation, this is the same Lord Jesus, the son of Jesse, that has the keys of David. The Lord, who had power to change Israel in that time, can change anybody's heart in this world, if he so will. Far more powerful and far more authority than David ever had. All the authority David ever had came from the Lord Jesus, maker of heaven and earth. He has control over all things. Notice what he says, these say, things saith he that is holy, that is true. He's not lying to you, friends. He can never lie. What did Paul tell us? By the Spirit, God who cannot lie, promised before the world began. He that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, he opens the heart. No man shutteth. And shutteth. Well, he shuts us in, doesn't he, into the kingdom. And no man openeth. We read in the book of the Revelation in the closing. It's wonderful. Nothing ever will enter that can defile that glorious heaven. We long to be with Christ. Paul says, you know, if we suffer with him, we shall live with him. If you suffer with him now, we will live with him. You, will, you are called, friends, to suffer for Christ. Isn't it an honor to suffer for him? Do we not consider it an honor? Yes. When you consider all that he was suffering for you, child of God, 
It's the greatest honor to suffer with him. And if you do, you will soon reign with him because he is true and he cannot lie. Amen.